in the book of Nehemiah chapter 3. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there, Nehemiah chapter 3. We have in Nehemiah chapter 3 um, another list of people plus all of the gates names in the city of Jerusalem. However, this chapter gives us some great insight into Nehemiah's success. First, he made a complex operation relatively simple by dividing the wall into 40 different sections. Second, he seems to show the ability to get individual laborers to work with their fellow workers. And third, and most importantly, uh, the erection of the walls was a demonstration of the power of God, which enabled the Jews to press on in their task, even in the face of discouragement and hostile opposition. There's a lot that we can learn from this passage, especially in how we are to proceed in the building of God's church. I've titled this message coming together as we see the 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 people coming together from gates to glory as they are making the gates but ultimately their eyes on the glory of God I'm trusting that as we look at this passage of scripture there'll be much that we can discover and apply to our lives concerning the church in a peanuts cartoon Lucy demanded that Linus change the TV channels, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, asks Linus. These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they are nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want to turn to? asks Linus. Turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, Why can't you guys get organized like that? We must keep in mind that this was everyday, ordinary people who are willing to get the work done for the Lord. Before any church can truly be successful, the people of the church must realize and understand that God's work is for everyone. This was a great work, and the people are willing to rise to the challenge. Will you please stand with me as we read from God's word out of respect for God's word as we read Nehemiah chapter 3 the whole chapter no laughing as we have some very difficult names to look at I'll be reading from the English standard version this morning then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priest and they built the sheep gate they consecrated it and set its doors They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechor, the son of Emri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. 
They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, required or repaired. And next to him Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, repaired. And next to them Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. And next to them the Tekoites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired and the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, and the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. And next to them Uziel, the son of Herahiah, the goldsmiths repaired, and next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumes, perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumoth, repaired, opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. And Malkajah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him, Shalom, the son of Helohesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters, and Hanon, the inhabitants of Zenoah, repaired the valley gate, and they rebuilt it, and set its doors and its bolts and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the dung gate. And Malkajah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth Herakim, repaired the Dungate, and rebuilt it, and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Koheza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it, and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. And after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the ruler of of the district of Beth Zur repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty man. And after him the Levites repaired, and Rehom, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the ruler of the district of Kilah, repaired for the district. And after him their brothers repaired. Baviah, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kilah. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Joshua, the ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. And after him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house to Eliashub, the high priest. And after him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, and the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashub to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests and the men of the surrounding area repaired. And after them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired, the, repaired beside his own house. And after him, Benui, the son of Hennedid, repaired another section from the house of Azariah and the buttress and to the corner. And Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the courts of the guard and after him Padiah the son of Parash and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate 
and on the east and projecting the tower. And after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. And above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, the Hanon, the sixth son of Zaloth, repaired another section. And after him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malkajah, the one of the goldsmiths repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the muster gate and the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can look at what seems to be a bunch of names and a bunch of gates. Names that are even hard to pronounce and gates that are hard to pronounce but Lord within your word is something for every one of us your servants listen may you speak today not because of a great orator but because God you choose to speak to your servants may we hear this morning I pray this in Jesus name Amen. You may be seated. Nehemiah had before him what seems like an impossible task. Many obstacles that he would have to manage. He would have to look at his resources. He would have to wisely and motivate a discouraged group of people to move forward. Nehemiah was focused on what God wanted. Now, he would not let anything discourage him from going forward. Before we look at these gates this morning, I want us to first take a look at the characteristics of the people. First, the characteristics of the workers. The task was to rebuild the wall. We see... The word build or a form of it used many times in this chapter to rebuild and to remove the reproach that they were suffering. It would require certain characteristics of the workers. And so let's look at some of these characteristics that these workers had to possess. First of all, let's look at their coordination. Their coordination. This was a well-organized project. Nehemiah divided the workers into what uh, somewhere between 40 and 42 groups. I believe it's 42 to be exact. And nine individual workers are named. Each group was given the responsibility of rebuilding a particular section of the walls of Jerusalem, including the gates. Each worker knew where they were to be and what the job was. Everything was set up and carried out in an ordinary fashion. And this reveals a good lesson for us. And that lesson is if we have no organization, the work will be hindered and will fail to move forward. D.L. Moody once said, I thank God for all the I thank God for all the faithful people and a local church wants to help, but not all have that idea. 
A great many people have got a false idea about the church. They have the idea that the church is a place to rest in, to get into a nicely cushioned pew and contribute to the charities and listen to the minister and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. And that is all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never enters their mind. Dio Moody was saying that that's the average churchgoer that actually working for the church never enters their mind. These people had to have some sort of coordination to go about building these walls. Secondly, let's see their commission. These workers had a commission that they took seriously. Nehemiah organizes these workers and puts them into a particular place to carry out a specific work. They understand the importance of the project. They knew what it was and they knew how important it was. Thirdly, let's see their commitment. The workers were committed as we will see they completed the work. It, they, they bring it to completion. They were faithful to get the work accomplished. It makes you wonder if God's people were just faithful. Imagine what a difference would be made for Christ's kingdom if we were just faithful. Next, let's see their cooperation. There are two phases, or two phrases, I mean, that get repeated over and over and over again. They are this, next to him and next to them. Over and over again, as we read through that chapter, next to him, next to them. Next to him, next to them. And this is an emphasis on the unity and the cooperation of the workers. They had to cooperate with one another. It's a precious thing with the people of the church when people within a church can can get along and carry out the work that God has called them to accomplish. It's precious when God's people come together and cooperate with one another so that the work gets done. Lastly, let's see their courage. Their courage. These workers are people with great courage. They stood up for what they believe in. They faced all kinds of opposition. Think about it. They were threatened. They were ridiculed. They were mocked. They were scorned and more. And if you want to build anything of value for the kingdom of God, then let me tell you something. It will take courage. And courage is a byproduct of faith. Fear comes when we fail to trust in God. Courage comes when we have faith in God. Fear comes when we fail to trust in God. In Mark chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus asked his disciples why they were fearful and why they had no faith. There's a connection between fear and faithfulness. Fear is produced by a lack of confidence in the Lord. In Mark chapter 4, the biggest problem that the disciples had was not the storm. That wasn't their biggest problem. It may have seemed like the biggest problem, especially to the disciples. Come on, if you're out on a boat 
and there's a storm rolling in, guess what your biggest problem seems to be? The storm that's about ready to take over your boat. And it seemed like that was the biggest problem. But it wasn't their biggest problem. Their biggest problem Jesus addressed. He doesn't say, oh, oh, look at this problem of the storm. Their biggest problem was their lack of faith. That was their biggest problem. Their lack of faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're told that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. If we want to be a builder of God's kingdom, then we must be Christ-centered. There are many enemies who would like to draw our attention away from Christ and hinder our work. We must refuse to focus on the enemy and keep our eyes on Christ alone. Now that we've seen the characteristic of these workers, what I want to do um, is go through this passage of Scripture and look at these gates. So we've seen the characteristics of, of the workers. Now let's look at the gates. First, we have the sheep gate. The sheep gate. Note the teamwork that was here. As we see Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests are joined by the men of Jericho and Zakur. These workers are concentrating their efforts on the sheep gate. It was through the sheep gate that the sacrificial lambs were laid to the, or led to the altar to be sacrificed to atone for man's sin. This gate, the sheep gate, served as a constant reminder to everyone that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, as Hebrews 9.22 tells us. The blood is one of the fundamental doctrines of God's word. The blood of, of atonement, the, the blood atonement is a truth that God has made clear ever since the days of old. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul, Leviticus 17.11. Every single Old Testament sacrifice was pointing forward to the Lamb of God. Every single one who would one day be offered upon the altar of Calvary for the, for, for the sins of mankind. John the Baptist called Christ. What did he say about Christ? He called him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I would not be surprised if this were the exact gate that Jesus entered when he came into Jerusalem, symbolizing that he would one day be our ultimate sacrifice. This gate serves as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament. He came and fulfilled what all those sacrifices could not do. As they covered sin, but He removes sin. That's the sacrificial lamb of God. So we see the sheep gate. And then we come to this fish gate. We come to this fish gate. Now some of y'all know uh, my surprise vacation 
by my by my wife she took us to Michigan and we went into this this marketplace where there's all kinds of different food and and this sort of thing but in this marketplace they have all this fresh fish and it smells like fresh fish and I was I was like look at this ahi grade or sushi grade ahi tuna $30 a pound I was like wow and you know on my pastor's salary I can afford that so I no I didn't buy any of it I'm just joking but uh uh it was, it was just incredibly interesting to me. The fish gate is where fresh fish would have been brought into the city daily from the Sea of Galilee. They would bring in the fish um, and, and from the Mediterranean Sea, and they would sell it at the market. This means it had a high volume of traffic of people that would enter through the fish gate. Since the gate is called the fish gate, it should remind us of something other than just fish. We should recall the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, when he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When someone comes to know Christ as their Savior, they are caught, as it were. We belong to Christ to serve him and his purposes. It should only be logical then that once a person is saved, that they would want to tell others about that salvation. When was the last time that you actually went fishing? And I don't mean real fish. I mean for people. And one more thing about this fish gate sorry. is we see the, sorry, my, my watch is now talking to me because, anyway, um, that's a whole other story. Uh, one more thing about this gate is this, right? It says the nobles from Tekoa, they're not willing to work. When it says their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. There's a suggestion of resentment against the new leadership. The Tekoites were among those who had been in the land before the exiles had returned. And then we have this sudden influence and this power given to the returnees, specifically to Nehemiah. And it's bound to cause concern and resentment. And these nobles fell to see the spirit of humility, one that Jesus would later demonstrate on the eve of his betrayal and his arrest when he would take a towel and he would proceed to wash the feet of his disciples. He did so to reveal the lowliness of what he had come to do in his incarnation and in part to provide an example of Christian behavior for everyone to follow in general. He said, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you in John 13, 14 through 15. The Lord was always a servant, saying, I am among you as the one who serves, in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, If we are truly to be like Jesus, then we must serve as he served. Listen, the nobles wanted the benefits of the wall, right? They wanted the benefits of the wall, but they were not willing to do their share of the work on the wall. They would share in the security and the safety that the wall and the gates would provide to them, but they were not about to roll up their sleeves and get to work and do anything to fix the wall. 
And I just can't help but wonder as I, as I read that. How many churches are filled with people that want the benefits of the church? But if they're not willing to share in the work of the church. I'll, I'll, I'll come in. I want the benefits. I want to I be a member. I want to get benefits from the church. Don't ask me to do anything. Let's move to the next gate. As we come to the old gate. The old gate. The old gate was the main entrance into the old city of David. The spiritual application here is is what we would kind of call the old time religion. Now let me tell you what I mean by old time religion because I understand like that has different connotations for different people you know there's that that gospel song just give me that old time religion right it's good enough for Jesus and it's good enough for me that's that's the song I'm sure some of you know that song by heart apparently I do too but um, anyway we, we have that song and it conjures up different things for different people perhaps our mind goes to good old days or whatever it might be. However, what it's speaking of is the building upon solid, godly principles of old. Listen to Jeremiah 6.16. It says this. Thus says the Lord. That's what prophets did, by the way. They said, thus says the Lord. This is what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord. Stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That is old time religion. That's what it's speaking of. Seeking the old paths as Jeremiah is speaking of. We live in a day of seeker sensitive churches. And so what happens is pastors and 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 sometimes pastors are actually taught this. Find what the people want. Find what people want. And then build your ministry around what people want. In fact, what we have is this is what it's called a lot of times. Find a felt need. And build your ministry around it. And it happens all over the place. Churches all over. New churches springing up all over the place. Find a felt need. Start your ministry. Find what people want. Start your ministry. Do a little survey. Run a little survey of the folks. We could run a little survey of everybody in Washington. Ask them all what it is that they want in a church. And then we'd ask them this follow-up question, right? This is how you're taught to do this. I know. I've gone through all the training. So you do the survey. What do you want in a church? Here's your follow-up question. If a church like that existed, would you attend? And then when they say yeah, then you go and you organize a ministry to, to meet the most of what people said, what they wanted in a church. And then you go back to them and say, okay, we have this church. This is what we have. Now we want you to start attending. And what happens? message of the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes watered down to the point that sinful 
people can sit and hear the message and feel no conviction from the Lord. And day after day, and week after week, and month after month, and year after year, they sit in a church that is supposed to be a gospel-preaching, gospel-believing church, and they hear a message and feel no conviction to ever repent of their sin and receive Christ as their Savior. If we're ever going to build something that will truly make a difference in the lives of anybody, then it must be built upon the truth of the Word of God. That's the old gate. And then we come to the valley gate. The valley gate. The valley gate was on the west side of Jerusalem and overlooked the Tyropoan Valley. This was a rough and rugged valley that emptied into the valley of Hinnom. And this was the first gate that Nehemiah rode through when he went out and did his nighttime survey of the walls. The valley gate should serve as a reminder to us that believers must pass through the valley at times. There are times that these valleys are rough, they are hard, they are rugged, and they are even treacherous. Believers go through many mountaintop experiences, but God also allows people to pass through some deep, deep valleys. And these experiences teach us a great deal about grace and humility, do they not? God will resist the proud, and every Christian needs to embrace the teaching of humility. His word says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 5-7. Again, Jesus is our perfect example of humility, right? Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 4 through 8. The valley experiences of life, they're not pleasant. But they are profitable. And we must be cautious not to let those valley experiences keep us from serving. The valley gate. And then we come to every junior high boy's favorite gate. The dung gate. And it really is the dung gate. It was located at the southernmost southernmost part of the city. Just outside of the Dung Gate was the Valley of Hinnom. The garbage was carried out of the city through the Dung Gate and tossed into the Hinnom Valley where the fires burned around the clock to consume the waste. Now, there's a couple of lessons that we can learn here. One of them is that the proper disposal of waste is an essential part 
to, a healthy, to the health of a city. Also, God's people must dispose of the filthiness that sometimes creeps into our life. Paul warned the Corinthians, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God in 2 Corinthians 7.1. When we, we allow sin to reside in our hearts, we are hindered in our service to God, and God's people are to be a holy people because why? God is holy. And if we refuse to get rid of that which defiles us, we will struggle in building the kingdom of God. But there's a second lesson here as well. And that is that the work of rebuilding the dung gate would have been dreadfully unpleasant. How would you like to be the workers assigned to rebuilding the dung gate? Oh, by the way, you're going to go rebuild the dung gate. Can you imagine the smell from the burning garbage all the time? The stench wafts into the air constantly in the nostrils of the workers even though it was unpleasant it was not unimportant and here's where I'm going with this there are times as Christians where you will have to do an unpleasant job where you will be placed in an unpleasant situation However, we must stay focused and get the job done. I can remember when I was doing student ministry in, in Macon, Missouri, we'd go to, on Sunday night sometimes, we'd go to the McDonald's. And um, sometimes we'd get there, and it'd be right before closing time. And so what did we start doing? We said, hey, um, we thank you for serving us and we want to help take care of you. We started cleaning their bathrooms. The youth groups started cleaning their bathrooms. Every Sunday night we'd show up. So we're, we're going to take care of your bathrooms. We'd get all the stuff and we'd go clean their bathrooms. Teenagers. You see, ministry, sometimes it's, it's not pleasant. And it became where they would look forward to us coming. Oh, here they come. Because we, we took care of them. Just trying to minister to them. Unpleasant does not mean unimportant. There will be times that you're called to do something unpleasant. doesn't mean that it's unimportant. Next, we come to the fountain gate. The fountain gate is located on the east wall facing the Kidron Valley near the Pool of Siloam. It was through this gate that the water was brought into the old city through Hezekiah's tunnel, which connected to the water gate. This is the place where Jesus would open the eyes of the blind man in John chapter 9, verse 7. If a city does not have water, it will not last long. Water is essential to life. The gate is a reminder of the water of life that every person needs. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become, uh, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Salvation is the drink 
that satisfies the soul. Once a person receives this spiritual water, they will never be thirsty again. And then later in the Gospel of John, John, Jesus uses water as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. When he says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The fountain speaks of the living waters of the Holy Spirit that should flow from the life of every single believer. The application is that we must be saved if we are to ever be Spirit-filled. Then we come to the water This was Jerusalem's second source of fresh water. This is where the path that led from the Gihon Spring entered the city. And while the fountain gate speaks of the Holy Spirit, the water gate speaks of the Word of God. And oftentimes in Scripture, water is is a symbol of the blessed Word of God. Scripture says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 5. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, John 15, 3. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17 through 18. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of his word, Ephesians 5, 26. How can a young man be pure? By guarding it according to your word, Psalm 119, 9. These passages are speaking of the great cleansing power of the Word of God. God's Word makes us aware of our sin and instructs us on how we can deal with our sin. And when we are obedient to the Word and we confess our sin and we repent, we are cleansed. Believers are to keep their life clean through constant contact with the Word of God. Let's draw out a few interesting facts. First, this is the seventh gate mentioned. And in the scripture, seven is the number of completeness and perfection. I tend to believe that the number seven is associated with God's word because of its perfection. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Psalm 12, 6 and 7. There are many people who do not believe that the perfect word of God has been preserved. They would say things like this. Maybe you've heard them before. The Bible has mistakes in it. You can't trust the Bible. The Bible is just written by a bunch of men. Now, as much as I'd like to divert and spend a great deal of time on the Bible and how we know that it is the divinely inspired Word of God without error, I don't have the time for that in this message. What I do want us to understand is that the truth of God's Word has been divinely preserved and kept from the corruption of the flesh, human weakness, and the malice of Satan in the world, and human wickedness. Throughout the centuries, people have tried to silence the truth of Scripture and even destroy God's Word. But they can't. Why? Because 
God's word is given to us to reveal God's will. And what we believe about the scripture is this, that the Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world. The true center of Christian union and supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds and religions religious opinions should be tried all scripture is a testimony to christ who is himself the focus of the divine revelation baptist faith and message 2000 under the heading of god's word we believe that god preserved his scripture i want us to notice one more thing real real quick the water gate did not need any repair The gate was never built up because God's word will never be destroyed. God's word lasts forever. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away, Matthew 24, 35. Never retreat from God's word, Christian. Stand firm on it. Stay true to it. You don't need to add to it or improve upon it. All you have to do is implement it into your life. Then we come to the horse gate. The horse gate. This is the gate on the eastern side of Jerusalem. It overlooks the Kidron Valley. You can look across the valley and see the Mount of Olives where we read that Christ will return with his army. In biblical times, horses were used primarily for warfare. This gate should serve as a reminder to us that Jesus Christ will return riding on a white horse prepared for war. He will return in judgment, waging war against evil and the evil men of the world. This gate should also serve as a reminder to us of spiritual warfare in which every single believer is to be involved. This world is not our little playground And engaging in spiritual warfare is not a suggestion for believers. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, Ephesians 6, 12, and 13. No one that is serious about pleasing God and doing the will of God will get through this life without facing the enemy. You won't. Satan and his power of darkness are enemies of God and enemies of God's people. If you set out to build God's kingdom, you better believe you will face fierce opposition from the enemy. He will come after you. Next, we have the East Gate. This gate led directly to the temple. It's believed that Jesus entered through this gate when he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This gate served as an essential purpose. The purpose of the eastern gate was to take the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement out to the wilderness, past the Mount of Olives, and to take the red heifer to the Mount of Olives where it would be sacrificed and burned for its ashes which were necessary for ceremonial cleansing. Satan has always tried to manipulate humanity to try to stop biblical prophecy. The 
biblical or the Bible exposition commentary says this in the 16th century the, this gate was sealed up with blocks of stone by the Turkish Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent Jewish and Christian tradition both connect the Golden Gate with the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem and the Muslims associated it with the future judgment The prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of God depart from the temple at the eastern gate. And Jesus will return to the city the same way. It says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision I had seen by the Shabar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. <coughs> Ezekiel 43, 1-5. Listen, followers of Christ, we believe <coughs> that Christ will return. And God's people need to be alert. And make sure that our life is in order. We need to keep watch over ourselves as redemption draws near. Let's move to the final gate. The gate Mifkad or muster gate. It's the same as the muster gate in the ESV. It was located in the northeast corner of the city. It was used for the review and inspection of the troops in the army. There's a significant application here because when our Lord returns, then Jesus will gather his people together and review each person's service. This is what we refer to as a judgment seat of Christ. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Romans 14.10 This is where our deeds will be evaluated and we will either be rewarded for our service or we will suffer loss of reward. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3 13 through 15. Listen, every believer will one day stand before God. And our lives will be examined. And we will be rewarded accordingly. Nehemiah was a leader, but without followers, the work would not get done. Listen to me, Christian. Your work is noticed by God. What you do is noticed by Him. And He will reward those who faithfully serve Him. Do not get sidetracked from his word. He sees what you do for his kingdom and will reward you accordingly. In conclusion, it was in the city of Jerusalem, as much as in the temple itself, that worship was offered. Sacrifice was made. Sin was atoned for. The presence of God was found. For us, the temple is different now. The church, and I don't mean the geographical zip code, but I mean the body of believers constitutes the spirit-indwelt temple of God. The Jerusalem that we seek is 
the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, according to Hebrews 11.10. We seek a community not of this world, but one that will descend out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband, according to Revelation 21.2. For the Old Testament believers, Jerusalem needed to be in a condition so that God-prescribed worship could be offered. That is why the city is being rebuilt. No matter how far away they may have lived, Jerusalem was their city. What happened was something that is rarely seen as we read this. Merchants, security officials, city officials, priests, Levites, temple servants, women, and men are seen working on sections of the wall. This is unity in action. This is people coming together. This is the people of God. They're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are not frightened by any of their opponents. Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Church unity is precious. And it is to be prized when it's found. It is a thing of beauty to behold. And we could wish that this spirit was more prevalent in our churches today. Oh, that our churches would be unified. The work that we are engaged in is no less important than Nehemiah's time. It's God's work. You and I are building God's kingdom together by the help of God's spirit and for the glory of God. Far too often in the church, our question is this. Well, what's in it for me? That's our question. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to help with a harvest party and run a little game and blah, 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 blah. Or stand out there in the cold and let kids come by and get candy little stinkers or whatever. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? But that's not the question we should be asking. Because the church is to be a family. We are to be God's family. Remember when Nehemiah told old Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem that they had no portion or claim in Jerusalem? Jerusalem belongs to the people of God and they were not the people of God. And as a church, we are the people of God. You and I are the people of God. And it's not a spirit of exclusivity, but one of distinction on the basis our distinction is from the rest of the world and we are to be holy in nature and represent our God. That's who we are to resemble. And what is to define us is our God, plain and simple. What is the most remarkable is that none of these workers, as we look at this, are described as skilled wall builders. Not one of them. Not one time when we were reading through this huge long list in Nehemiah chapter 3, not one time did I say, and here is so-and-so, a skilled wall builder. Not once. There is not one expert that's singled out. None experts 
achieved so much. Not once did I say, and here's so-and-so. He has his master's degree in engineering. Non-experts achieved so much. Why? Why? Because everyone was involved. No matter how poor their assessment of their own gifting. Everyone was involved. You ever wonder why, if you're watching Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore goes on every adventure? It's a Ooh. Is that the guy you want to take? Still goes. That's us sometimes, right? What am I going to do? I'm too old. I'm too young. I don't know what to do. I'm, I don't know what to say. I stutter. I this. I, and we come up with all kinds of excuses to why we're not gifted to do what God wants us to do. But the illustration in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The unique gifting of pastors and teachers is given in order to equip the members, you, of of the body of Christ to do the work of ministry. The unique gifting of pastors or elders or whoever has a teaching position in the church the unique gifting of me as your pastor is to equip you as a church to do the ministry of the church listen the view that says spiritual ministry is the job of the pastor or the clergy or someone who is specially trained in order to do it is un biblical it's nowhere in scripture James Boyce says unfortunately many churches have it completely turned around it is said that today the churches more than anything else resemble a football game played in a large stadium there are 80,000 spectators in the stands who badly need some exercise and there are 22 men on the field who badly need some rest. So here's me bringing this message to the spiritual head. What will you sacrifice, dear Christian, in order to come together like these people in Nehemiah chapter 3 and build God's kingdom? Right here, Build God's kingdom at First Baptist Church, a part of building God's kingdom for God's glory. What 
will you do? Let's close in prayer.